Hey, baseball fans, this is Derek Van Riper. Now that spring training games are underway, opening day is just a few weeks away. Eno Saris and I have been getting ready for the season all winter on Rates and Barrels. Whether you're a seasoned fantasy player, a baseball stats junkie, or just someone who wants to learn more about the game, join us for four episodes each week this season, including our new Friday live stream with former big leaguer Trevor May. Check out the live stream on Fridays at 1 o'clock Eastern on the Rates and Barrels YouTube channel, or listen to the show wherever you enjoy your podcasts, including the ad-free option on the Athletic app. Hello and welcome to the Athletic Soccer Show. This is the weekend review where we discuss the major talking points from all the weekend's action from across the Atlantic. I'm Jack Collins and I'll be your host today. And joining me is the Athletic's very own Jay Harris. Jay, there were no Premier League games this weekend after all the games were postponed as a mark of respect following the death of Queen Elizabeth II. So it's a show today where we're going to be focusing on the rest of the action around Europe with no Brentford game for you to cover. The day job was on pause. What was your main task this weekend? Yeah, so I was actually, um, oh, hello, by the way, should probably say, I hope, you, hope you're a good, my friend. <laughs> um, I'm very good, mate. Very good, good, good. good. Uh, my task this weekend was to watch Jude Bellingham for 90 minutes. Um, and obviously Dortmund were away at Leipzig and there was a, a lot of narrative around that game, which I'm sure we'll get into for a second. Um, but it was just really interesting to see someone who's considered one of the hottest properties in the world and to just watch him intently for that long. Yeah, I mean, player watch, I suppose, is something slightly different to the, the usual kind of covering things as a whole. So there's different bits and bobs going on, but it's useful in so many ways because I wanted to talk about Borussia Dortmund today. And we'll also cover some major fixtures at the top of the table in both Serie A and La Liga. But let's start in Germany. Let's start with that Marco Rosa derby between Dortmund and Leipzig, where Leipzig ran out 3-0 winners on ESPN+. Marco Rosa was, of course, Dortmund manager last year, Jay. And this was his first game in charge of his hometown club against his previous club. It's an auspicious start that win yeah definitely like I said loads of narrative around this game and if you're Marco Rose you're probably kind of like rubbing your hands with glee thinking like I probably couldn't have asked for a better fixture and you know absolutely rubbing his hands with glee and I thought just the way that Leipzig approach this game was pretty perfect um, Team Werner still needs to, to work on his finishing I'm sure that's not a surprise to anybody listening um, but he was just causing Dortmund's defence so many problems he was constantly on the, the shoulder of the last defender that's really threatening and Dortmund just never really threatened Leipzig at all um, they definitely didn't have a single shot on target in the first half um, I think they might have had one or two in the second half they just looked really ineffective um, Conrad Lima had a had a really good game as well. He was just simply everywhere in midfield. So Marco Rose navigated what could have been um, quite a tricky game against his former in players pretty pretty easily in the end. Yeah, I mean, also he gets to go to Gladbach next week, which was his employer before <laughs> Dortmund. So he starts off with two uh, two personal derbies to kick off his, well, his the revenge rating. tour. Exactly. He was born from he was born in Leipzig. So it's quite it's quite an interesting one and obviously came up through the Red Bull model. So it feels like a perfect fit in, in so many ways. But I thought Leipzig were everything that Dortmund weren't, as you say, you know, in many ways intense, scything, sharp. They went in at halftime 2-0 up. 
it could have been more. It maybe should have been more. Uh, and Rose has given them a major bounce already, you know, after coming off the last two games under Tedesco where they conceded four Eintracht Frankfurt in the league last weekend and then Shakhtar Donetsk in the Champions League in midweek. This remains a very good side who should very much be in the top four conversation again, I think, as a minimum this season. Yeah, let's call it E for Atlet tonight. We've obviously already touched upon Timo Werner and definitely kind of like the suggestion from a few people was that it's going to take a little bit of time for, for Leipzig to 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 precisely work out how to use Werner and Nkunku. But I mean, Nkunku is yeah. one of the most exciting talents in world football, not just in the Bundesliga. If Werner can kind of regain the form that he kind of showed when he was at Leipzig originally, then you've got, again, one of the probably one of the best strikers in the Bundesliga. And there's just so much talent throughout the rest of the team. Defence seemed to be a little bit more settled than obviously conceding four in the, in the two previous games. And it was just a much, much better performance. And like you said, that was the kind of strange thing with the Stortman team. What was it? Five points for now opening um, four games. And then when there's so yeah. much talent in a squad like that, it, it just doesn't really make any sense. But I think... For them to be in the top four conversation, as you said, that's a minimum. That's what we kind of expect because there's more than enough talent in this team to, to achieve that. Yeah, 100%. I, and I'm a, I'm a massive Dominic Sobersly fanboy. I thought he was I thought he was exceptional. He's one of those players that just really can do everything and, and, you know, should have scored more than his actual wonder goal in so many ways. But I just, you know, under a coach who's willing to coach these attacking patterns, I, I think that those three players are going to learn to play together and, 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 and thrive. And, and it makes it a very exciting viewing watching Leipzig. I mean... Dortmund were very poor, I thought, first half. And, and and we're looking at this and going, OK, how does this how's this fix? How, does you, how do you sort this out? They did improve in the second half, I thought. But I'm sure many listeners here will be in, especially interested in the introduction of, of Gio Reyna, who's coming back from an injury. Um, I thought he provided a little bit of spark and he definitely carved out Dortmund's best opening. But he's not quite there yet with that full mark, match sharpness. He was very good midweek in the Champions League against Copenhagen. Um, and there are positive signs. It's not just quite coming all together right yet yeah as you said he was probably involved in Dortmund's only real it wasn't even a chance to be honest it was a half chance but you know Bellingham got the ball slid it down for Reyna on the left wing and he whipped in a really nice cross for, for Modeste and up until Reyna had kind of been introduced that's what Dortmund were kind of lacking you know you've got a striker like Modeste who kind of thrives on those balls into the box very yeah. classic traditional centre forward and he just wasn't getting that service so within the first couple of minutes of, of Reina coming on and doing that you're thinking alright this game's going to get a little bit more lively it was still only 2-0 at that point and then after that I think you kind of alluded to it just where he's coming back and trying to regain his full fitness I thought he looked a little bit rusty I know there was one counter attack where he looked really threatening and then just as he got to the, the edge of Leipzig's box I think he kind of like stumbled over the ball um, almost felt like he was kind of caught in two minds but I think the signs were still there um, that this is a player with obviously tremendous potential and it's just kind of like a matter of time and being patient. And on Dortmund's struggles, they're obviously missing Torgan Hazard, Jamie Bano Gittens, who's been really impressive in, in the first few weeks. So I think when everybody's kind of together, um, hopefully the hopefully everyone will excel, but kind of putting Rayner on when they were 2-0 down, as it, and as you said, everybody was really ineffective, probably apart from Jude Bellingham. I mean, you're asking a lot for him to kind of be the difference maker in that moment. Yeah, this is it. You know, he's coming in and, and, and especially at that kind of beat, you're like, right, you're the spark. You make things happen. And that's tricky for a player who's been out for so long. But, you know, there are positive signs. And I think this is a this is a good period of time here before the World Cup 
you know, comes around, we've got an, enough time for Giorena to to kind of find that match sharpness again and, and find, as you say, it was it was those kind of moments where you go, okay, naturally, if you're in full flow, mm. you just do things that you, you definitely aren't doing right now. But I think there's, there's it's a positive kind of reintroduction of, of Giorena. And it's lovely to see him back out on the football pitch. He was sensational. Uh, on, on Wednesday night and, and just you know one of those players are like oh when when he is in full flow and when he is in that kind of mood he, he's such a joy to watch and you know it, it's going to take a little while to, for it all to come back together but I'm excited to see him continue to you know to re regain and, and retain that kind of ability that we all know he has it's really exciting to make sure that you know a player of this caliber mm. is going to be managed properly and you've got to give Dortmund some credit for that as well in terms of you know they're not rushing him back even though this was a tricky moment for them it's like okay we could have started him in this game he's being managed a little bit and I think that's probably for the best for everyone and um, just quickly on Bellingham who was your task you know how did he do it's it feels like he's become the beating heart of this team it's fulcrum it's most important player in in lots of different ways but then again, Dortmund weren't great almost to a man. And, and it makes it quite difficult if you are the kind of heartbeat of that side to come out of this with a positive spin. Um, it was really fascinating watching Bellingham. Uh, I actually have quite a strange uh, connection to Jude Bellingham, a very, very loose one. But uh, I'll tell the story very quickly. Um, when I was at university, um, I worked for a local non-league football club. And um, there was a striker up front called, called Mark Bellingham former officer in the police force and um, I was there when I think he scored his 400th or 500th goal in, in non-league like he was like a prolific non-league striker um, and he was kind of like retiring at the end of that season and you know he just kind of spoke about oh yeah you know my two sons are coming through at Birmingham City da -da 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 -da. maybe three four years after this happens um, I see Jude Bellingham, Birmingham City, and I'm thinking, no way, it can't be. And then I looked <laughs> it up, and it, and it and it was. So I kind of wish I'd chatted to his dad a little bit more. Um, but going, at, that's amazing. Yeah, it, it's proper random. The the things you see and the people you meet at football is just wild sometimes. But actually, going on to Bellingham, I think immediately when you watch him intently for 90 minutes, what struck out the most is how powerful he is, and he's only 19 years old. People yeah. obviously develop at different rates. But he's kind of like got the build of a boxer, um, so strong. But then he combines that with being so graceful on the ball. Um, literally, I'd, he can pretty much do anything um, in terms of being a midfielder. Very classic box-to-box -box midfielder. Um, I remember the first thing he did in the game was tracked back um, Abdou Diallo, pulled off a slide and tackle, like perfectly timed. Next thing he did was he was under pressure from Forsberg and Werner, played a pass with the outside of his right boot to Rafael Guerrero. And I was just like, oh, this is, you know, this is beautiful. And then there were just so yeah. many kind of spins and turns in tight spaces. Um, was always kind of like willing to receive the ball, even when he was under pressure. And you just think at 19 years old to kind of have that confidence and the ability to do that. And for your older teammates to trust you like that, the guy's just phenomenal. Um, so it was an absolute pleasure to watch him for 90 minutes. So even though his team lost 3-0, like you could make an argument that he's probably one of the best five players, maybe even top three players on the entire pitch. And, th and that kind of just speaks volumes about how just ridiculously talented he is. This pipeline's become so impressive, hasn't it? The, the Bundesliga pipeline for young talent, and we've seen it with the US for years, actually, you know, players going across to Germany and, and, and thriving in, in those situations. And, you know, then Jaden Sancho, carved the path I suppose for, for the kind of UK contingent to go out and do this and 
I think the Bundesliga remains such a wonderful, wonderful league to watch players in their full development. And look, so many players that we now talk about as, you know, going to be the best in the world or going to be up there with a very elite, you know, level of players have come through these pipelines in the Bundesliga and, and it continues to produce and it continues to produce absolutely sensational players. Yeah. And also I think with the Bundesliga, maybe five or 10 years ago, um, English players, English youth players were quite reluctant to grow abroad. And then, like you said, you've had Sancho and even people like Adamola Lookman and even um, uh, Oli Burke, Oliver Burke. <laughs> kind Back of over with Werder Oliver, Bremen, what a player. <laughs> even Oli Burke um, kind of really show what's kind of just like the benefits of going to a different league. I think for too long, there was this perspective of, oh, you know, your your development's far going to be so much better if you if you go to a club in the championship, which doesn't really make much sense. Go over to Germany. There's going to be a little less pressure in terms of you're not um, a local youth talent. Whereas, you know, if you're playing in England and you're an English youth talent straight away, you're going to be billed as the next Wayne Rooney or the next Rio Ferdinand, depending on what position you're in. And as we kind of touched upon, such a fantastic football culture in the Bundesliga or in Germany in general, so competitive. There's a high chance you're going to get the opportunity to play for a team in European competition. Like, why would you not take that on as your development? Um, you know, Sancho was playing with, with people like Marco Royce at, at 18, 17 years old. Like, that's going to be fantastic for his development. So it's such a, such a good league for kind of like developing talent. We saw the same thing with Christian Pulisic, right? And you know, the exactly. players that you know, Weston McKennie at Schalke, and all, all these players who have gone there and been like, right, this is my my ticket to the big time. And look, it doesn't work out for everyone. We saw Ricardo Pepe go to Augsburg; it hasn't worked. He's gone, you know, off to Groningen on loan, um, which I think is a good thing in terms of his development and getting those minutes in before the World Cup. But there, there's a lot of players here who've made this jump, and and it continues to produce, you know, most of the time for for those young players who are able to to step in and, and be given those minutes in a in a really top draw kind of environment and a really top level league so early on in their careers it really really is joy and um, while we're on the Bundesliga it's worth pointing out too Jay that since we talked about Bayern being so dominant a couple of weeks ago they've drawn three games in a row in the league Gladbach then Union Berlin Stuttgart this weekend any cause for concern for Bayern fans? You know I was looking into this a little bit deeper before we jumped on and um, a couple of things struck out to me straight away so um, against Stuttgart, they had 68% possession. And against Union Berlin, they had 75% possession. So obviously, just having a lot of the ball doesn't mean that you're going to win a game. It's more about what you do with the ball. And in both games, I think they had you know at least 15, 16, 17 shots uh, minimum, which kind of tells you that they were peppering the goal. But again, is it a case of, are they just peppering from distance? And yeah. immediately when you kind of look at those possession stats and the team's not winning you maybe get the impression that they're kind of missing a little bit of creativity. It's all well and good having people like Mane, Sane, Coleman, Muller, but do you kind of need someone who's not going to run in behind the defence, but it's going to play the pass to put you in behind the defence? So maybe that's been missing a little bit. But then you actually look at some of the other numbers. They've scored 19 goals. They've conceded five. And the only other team who's got a better defensive record is Union Berlin. So... Their goal difference is fourteen after their goal difference is plus fourteen after six matches, which is absolutely insane. So I yes. feel like what's just happened in the last three games is probably just more down to poor luck than poor performances. And before you know it, um, we'll be asking them to start one 0 down again because they're just you know steamrolling steamrolling the league. 
Yeah, I mean, true. And, and they were sublime against Inter in the Champions League in midweek as well, I thought, which which is probably one that's, that's worth bearing in mind. They remain third in the league behind second place Freiburg and top of the pine, Paul Union Berlin, whose win over Cologne saw USMNT interest as well. Leading Union's line is Jordan Perfork, and he's been excellent stepping into this front line, although he did make miss a penalty in this game. In fact, it was a dreadful penalty. It was a really, into, really, really bad penalty. Into the but... hands. But he did pull off a very nice nutmeg in the build-up to um, Union Berlin's first goal. So, you know, I'll give him swings that at and, least. Swings and roundabouts. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, he's, making, he's making his case to be the US number nine in Qatar. Two goals and two assists in his first five Bundesliga games. He made that move across from young boys in Switzerland this summer. He's made that step up. Um, and he's probably the number nine you know, the US number nine, who's playing at the highest level right now. And, and Union's early season form, I don't think it's, it is a blip. I think this is a really, really well, well coached, well drilled side, you know exactly what they're doing. And he is thriving in that strike partnership up top. Yeah. If you're Jordan Peffock and you're kind of looking at the, the World Cup in, in coming up in November, December, and you're, you know, in the summer transfer window, you're thinking, is it best for me to just continue and stay at Young Boys because I am know I'm going to get that guaranteed game time? Or should yeah. I kind of take a risk and see what going to Union Berlin um, can kind of offer me? And I think we've kind of seen the, him reap the, reap the rewards of kind of being bold and moving to a different team, a team that's on the up and is playing really well, as you said. And that can be like the biggest difference between you being maybe on the substitutes bench at a major international tournament or being, you know, the guy that's given the, the kind of starting role. If you're showing that you want to kind of push yourself and test yourself in a more competitive league, um, that's going to give you so much better experience. So you just have to like fully take your hat off to him for kind of kind of doing that and kind of taking it with, with both hands. Obviously, the as we said, the penalty wasn't great. So maybe he won't be the penalty taker in Qatar. Um, but if he's still scoring it in other ways, I'm sure we'll let him off. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I've been really, really impressed with him. That that strike partnership with Geraldo Becker has been, you know, the hot streaker at the start of this tournament and at the start of this league campaign. I mean, and basically the fact that Union our top is testament to one a, a rock solid defensive line as, as it can you kind of, kind of alluded to in, mm. in that buy-in segment um, but also the fact that they're able to go in and get things done in, in in these areas and and those two have been excellent so i'm really pleased for him you know as you say you take a gamble take a gamble in a year in a world cup year is, is a risk is risky and business, many people right? many people don't so and and that's why i felt like it was important to mention it some people just kind of stick with the status quo and that can be more damaging so yeah fair all, all credit to him Yes, indeed, indeed. Okay, let's leave Germany behind. Let's go to Italy, where well, there was drama everywhere again over on Paramount Plus. Uh, Milan went to Sampdoria and they won two one thanks to an Olivier Giroud penalty. They won this though with ten men for the majority of the second half after Rafael Leal was sent off for a second yellow, which is a yellow card, but it's also a bit harsh so because harsh. he's trying to do a bicycle kick. It's so harsh. <laughs> But he does almost look a kick the defender in the face. So there is, there, there is kind of that element of things. Look, that might not have affected the outcome of this one, Jay. But Milan's next game is against Napoli and he's going to miss that now. Liao has been Milan's lightning in a bottle this season. He makes things happen for them. And now he misses a massive top of the table clash. He'll be kicking himself. Yeah, but, but with a red card like that, if you're his coach or one of his teammates... You, I don't think you're ever going to go into the dressing room and tell him never attempt that ever again. That's kind of the beauty of a player like Rafael Leal, right? Like he's going to try and pull off extraordinary moments. This just happens to be the the one in a million time where he, he accidentally kicks the, the defender in the defender in the face. But as you said, yeah, he's going to be a miss for Milan. It's only going to be one game. But I mean, you know, he got the assist for the opening goal and just the kind of way the 
although the assist was a little bit accidental, the run yes. that came, <laughs> well, not even a little bit, it was accidental. The run that came before it, where he was kind of, you know, driving into the box and taking on defenders, that's exactly what you need. That kind of unpredictability and that kind of confidence and drive and determination to run at defenders. Um, so that's defi- definitely going to be a miss for Milan in, a, in what's shaping up to be like a massive game next weekend. Yeah, it's an, early, it's an early big one. Obviously, they had the derby last weekend that, that we talked about, and then next weekend they have Napoli. And it, it, there's a there's a two big games. And Liao's ability to just make things happen on a sixpence. You know, we t- we talk about spark players, and we were talking mm-hmm. about the, about Rainer earlier. Liao is the ultimate spark. Now he, he was obviously MVP of of Serie A last year, so it, it's not. This isn't. We're not. You know, bringing a, a player who's come from <laughs> out here. Um, but Liao is is so key, and in the way that he carries Milan up the pitch, um, and his kind of bond and, and and relationship, I think, with with Olivier Giroud, which we see time and time again. And in fact, they scored a. You know, they worked a brilliant goal last week in the derby. They nearly scored the exact same goal in, in this game. You know, in pulling it back and and, and Giroud kind of tucking it into the corner but it does feel like without him there Milan are a a far less dangerous force and Napoli will be looking to you know to take full advantage of that and you know talking of Napoli they left themselves well they left it late to see off Spezia new signing Giacomo Raspadori scored an 89th minute winner he was trusted to lead the line in the absence of Victor Osimhen and he repaid Spalletti's trust with this winning goal perhaps the most interesting thing about this Napoli side Jay I think is is that they have depth where they didn't last year when Osimhen was out injured they had nobody play the same role even with the experience and goals of Dries Mertens and I love Dries Mertens so much um but it was mostly Patania, who is a bit, you know, we used to nickname him the kitchen sink because he feels like you chuck him on at the end of games to try and try and nod in a, a late winner. Um, this year they have Raspadori and uh, Giovanni Simeone who, who can do that and play that role. Um, it's an exciting time for Napoli and, you know, it just feels like there's a real buzz around the club. Yeah, it does. You know, top of the table, 14 points, you know, eight, I think it was an 89th minute winner that, um, that Raspadori yeah. kind of pulled off. And it's still just so crazy that, you know, the team went through kind of all that upheaval in the summer and people were kind of writing them off saying it was the end of an era. Maybe not appreciating that the end of one era is the the beautiful beginning of another. So just the way that they've kind of, you know, approached this league and kind of maybe got rid of some players who, you know, your your Mertens and your Insignias who were, were top, top level, but they've replaced them with some really, really exciting talent. And that sometimes the most important thing to make sure that you're not constantly relying on one or two players, but to kind of have your your goals and your assists or whatever it is spread out throughout the rest of the team. So as you as you said, this this could have been a real well, it ended up being a real test missing Osimian. But they managed to pass it with Raspadori and that will be a massive boost for Raspadori and for the rest of the team to show that they they can get things done in a slightly different way. They don't just have to rely on Insignium in those moments. Well, this is it. This is, it's such a weird one because obviously Insigne, 31 years old, obviously a local boy and, and such a club hero. Mertens was 35. They've replaced those two players in in so many ways with with, with Raspadori, who's 22, and with Kvitsa Karatskelia, who is 21. This, you know, they're taking a 10, 12-year gap here off these of these players and, and starting to build again. And, and it's similar with Kaladu Koulibaly, right? 31 years old, a brilliant player, and, and no one's suggesting that he isn't, but he's obviously come for a, a new challenge at Chelsea. 31 years old, Kim Min-Jae comes in from Fenerbahce, and he's 25. You've immediately kind of 
made this team younger and therefore I think a little bit more, you know, maybe a little bit more resilient. You've got a little bit more out in the tank from these players when, when things are stretched. And yes, you lose some experience, but equally there are other players to, to guide guide these youngsters in in these kind of areas. And I, I think it's a yeah, a huge exciting time to be a Napoli fan. I, I'm really excited. Every time I every time it gets to the weekend, I'm like, right, who are Napoli playing? Let's make sure that that's in the in the schedule. And I think that that's a cool thing to be kind of at where they're at. Um, Inter also bounced back from two consecutive defeats with a late winner of their own, Marcelo Brozovic, who scored in the derby. Obviously, that goal didn't end up counting for anything. This one did. He came up big again in, in the 89th minute as well, and they needed it. Still no Lukaku. And I think this is massive because I think it feels like Inter need to ride this period out without Lukaku leading the line, uh, stay in touch with the pack in front of them. And so this felt like a massive win, I thought. Yeah, you know, you just spoke about it then, you know, ride out this kind of um, slightly tricky period at the moment. And I'm pretty certain we said the exact same thing two or three weeks ago. But if you're just looking at the the table and kind of where they sit in that, they've lost two of their first six games, but they're only two points off the top. So if they can kind of keep that gap to, yeah, just as small as possible, in theory, the second Lukaku kind of returns, those losses are kind of going to get, you know, ripped out of the book probably going to turn into draws which are hopefully going to turn into wins and you're going to see them completely firing up the table again but if you're a team who's competing for the title and you've lost two of your opening six games normally that would be absolute disaster right so the fact, yeah. <laughs> the fact they are still well in the mix and you know are ahead of Juve who we're going to get into in onto in a minute you're, you're probably just saying you know what this let's not panic this is this is probably better than maybe we were expecting let's just go with it yeah, and and you know as we've discussed you know various times, and I imagine we discussed various times again over the course of this season. hundred percent. That top that top bit of the table feels like it's kind of anyone's race in in so many ways, and it makes this makes this title race incredibly exciting. But you mentioned them there, and I think it is only right that we get into them. Juve, Juve, well, Juve two nil down at home to Salernitana at halftime. They salvage a point in the dying embers of this. It's becoming a theme in Serie A this weekend at the very least. But bear in mind. Salernitano escaped relegation by the skin of their teeth and a brilliant great escape they should be given credit last season but Juve just looked miles off it we talked about these teams finding a way right in tricky situations Milan with 10 men finding a winner Napoli and Inter both winning late there's an element of spirit here that we should talk about because they obviously very nearly dragged three points out of this they actually score a 97th minute winner before it's ruled out by VAR there were red cards everywhere and ultimately it descended into absolute chaos but <laughs> Juventus put themselves in a hole and then had to try and salvage something out of it. They didn't manage to, just. But more than the actual drop points, as you say, you know, this is a league table where, you know, teams can drag themselves back into it. There is going to be, you know, drop points here and there because there are like a couple of teams on, on similar levels. More importantly, I think, or, or more worryingly from Juventus' perspective, this performance was absolutely dire, especially the first half. They didn't deserve three points. And that will be the big worry. Yeah, definitely. The performance wasn't particularly good at all. And even though they did come back and get a point, it, it would have been a travesty had they got three points. I think it's still still quite unfair they got a point. Um, <laughs> because it felt like in the second half, there was a period where uh, their game plan was basically pass, pass it to Vlahovic and Milic. Oh, and Milic, sorry. And just basically see if they can score from distance because they just couldn't get past Salantina's defence. But in terms of Benucci's equaliser, the penalty, 
Alexandro knows exactly. I'm not saying it's not a penalty. Alexandro knows exactly what he's doing. But you just feel like San Natana, they dug in for so long. It was what, like the 92nd minute of the game. And that was just like a, a moment of just a tired mind from, from the defender. Um, and so even that, the penalty felt like a little bit fortunate. Um, and then obviously Benucci's penalty saved originally. So you're thinking, oh, they're, like, they're really just throwing this away. But then the rebound just falls so nicely to him and, and he scores. So even though they did kind of find a way back into the game and they got a point, it still felt really scrappy. It's not as if, you know, they were absolutely controlling the game in the final half an hour, putting San Martino under loads of pressure. They just got really, really, really lucky. And I know some people will listen to this and say, well, that's kind of the sign of a, of a great team or the sign of champions. You kind of got a cash in on your luck when it's in. Yeah, that's true. Um, but you can't be relying on it all the time and just the the kind of lack of creativity and the kind of lack of ideas they had at the time um, was quite worrying. And then if you're getting sent off for celebrating, it's not always a good look. And then if if, if you're fighting on the touchline with the opposition players, it's not a great look. So uh, yeah, chaos is one way of putting it. It just felt like a, just felt like pure entertainment those final 10 minutes. I was like, I, I couldn't keep up, but I was loving it. Um, you know, if you were a, if you were a TV producer watching that game, you wouldn't even write what happened in the final 10 minutes in a script because it would be too ridiculous. Yeah, I saw someone on Twitter say that it was like scripted by a WWE producer and it <laughs> felt about right. It was, it was, I think I would only describe it as a circus. It like, it just one of those where like, you know, the 92nd minute penalty, as you say, I was like, well, Juve have got away with one here. And then suddenly you get these messages like Juve going to Juve. You're like, hang on, what's going on here? They've scored. And, they, you know, because all these TVs are on different elements, different, everyone's everyone's watching it yeah, slightly yeah, different yeah, yeah. times. And I'm going, hang on, what's happened here? And then suddenly I see it and I'm like, oh, right, okay, that makes more sense. Um, and, and then you're looking at these kind of things and looking at the different elements and thinking, okay, what's going on? And then it's ruled offside, the the, the third goal. Harsh. I mean, he, I mean, it is harsh. He, but he also clearly the keeper isn't getting anywhere near it yeah. either way um so, so there is the kind of that element minute getting sent off for a second yellow when he's taking his shirt off after goal i mean nuts <laughs> like, like absolutely mad sent, behavior. sent off for celebrating a goal that was disallowed it's just richard hasn't got booked for this um against oh, of course, yeah. uh, similar, similar vibes but i don't think he would have done that if he if he was on a yellow card mm. because because that's, that's stupid um but yeah and then the benches start having to go at each other everyone's having a scrap Juventus end the game with nine men Salernitana end the game with 10 men there's this, you know the touchlines are fighting each other the ref calls of the VAR you're in the 102nd minute and everyone's like what so just just so I'm 100% certain was it four red cards in the end Three red cards for players and one for the one bench, for a, one for Allegri, right? Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> just nuts, like absolutely mad. Um, but but you know, it is it kind of is what it is, and and ultimately, Juve are, are going to have to pick themselves up after that because it would feel it'll feel like a massive blow. And more importantly, they need to pick themselves up after that performance because you know the, the first forty five in particular, completely and utterly lackluster. But it would be how I describe it. Just one of those you're looking at going. I don't, I don't know what's going on here. It, it just doesn't look like there was any sort of tangible plan. And, you know, Allegri came out this week and said, I don't want to be beautiful losers. I'm not going to change my style. Okay, fine. But, you know, <laughs> th there is an element of that which suggests that you're not going to, you know, br bring more creativity in this side. And they lack it hugely um, in so many ways. So it's going to be interesting to see how and, this one plays out. And obviously also, 
now Allegri is going to get a touchline ban, right? And they're going to miss yeah. Quadrado and Milik. So at a time when, you know, Pogba's already out, Chiesa is still, I think, up maybe six, seven, eight weeks away. I think they said end of October. Di Maria is still out. Di Maria. It's all over the place. You've, you've now just made it worse for yourselves. And that's surely a little bit of immaturity in that moment. Like, if you really are kind of like, you know, champions material or champion material, you shouldn't be getting two players and a manager sent off in the final few minutes of a game, regardless of the, the slightly bizarre circumstances that happened. Yeah, 100%. 100%. I mean, for so many, so many years, Juventus felt like the big bad wolf, right? Whatever yeah. happened, they would just get there. And now I, I, it, it doesn't I'm feel like that you, at all. I'm telling you, when it went into extra time and it was um, 2-1, I just had a weird feeling Juve were going to win 3-2. And obviously it was just a, a debatable offside call was the only thing that prevented that. They, just, they still have that aura around them but then they've just become more prone to doing slightly silly things like that. Yeah, absolutely. A, a little bit on Weston McKenney. He, he started this game and it's nice to see him starting games again. It wasn't a particularly brilliant performance. Um, I mean, he stayed on for longer than the rest of the midfield, but whether that's <laughs> due to his own performance or just like the difference in changes. I think I, I feel a bit sorry for Weston sometimes because I, I think he's a wonderful footballer and has, has all the ingredients, but he's also not the kind of player that picks up a game by the scruff of the neck and makes it his own. And, and with the rest of this midfield basically failing to do anything as well, I, I think he got a little bit lost in this one. Um, it was, it's a shame because I thought against PSG, you know, in, in the Champions League, he was Juventus' best midfielder. Um, so I was kind of expecting him to kick on a little bit, but it just didn't quite, just didn't quite come to fruition for him. I guess McKenney is the kind of player who's supposed to be a foil for Juve's more creative talents. And as we just kind of touched upon, those creative talents are either injured or just kind of completely absent on the field at the moment. So to then kind of turn around and for people to expect him to, to kind of produce the goods is a little bit unfair because he's never really kind of been that kind of player. But as you kind of said, there were still probably moments in this game where coming off the back of a performance against PSG where, OK, his team lost, but his kind of contributions were really important to then follow follow that up against the team who, you know, as you said, just barely kind of survived in Serie A last season. You're kind of thinking, oh, okay, off the back of that game, he's really going to show what he's worth and kind of show his value to, to the side. So when he doesn't do that, it's a little bit disappointing. But then, as we said, the entire team was doing it. So we can't hammer him too much on that front. No, no. And, and with more you know, cohesive unit around him, I think he still will thrive. It's just wait, making sure that they can work out what that unit looks like in, in Juventus' midfield. Do you like Formula One, but struggle to keep up with everything that's going on? Then we have the podcast for you. Introducing the Race F1 Briefing, the podcast that brings you the latest F1 headlines in 15 minutes or less. With new episodes dropping on all four days of every race event, you'll never miss out on hearing what went down in practice, qualifying or the Grand Prix itself. And we'll also bring you all the behind the scenes news and gossip from the F1 paddock as well. If that sounds like the F1 podcast for you, search The Race F1 Briefing in your podcast app of choice. We'd love to have you join us. Um, okay, we'll, we'll leave Italy there and we'll move onwards to Spain, uh, where Real Madrid's perfect start to the season rolls ever onwards. Uh, they won 4-1 at home to Mallorca on ESPN+, Plus, even after going 1-0 down. But importantly, Jay, I think without the injured Karen Benzema, now we all know how good Benzema is and we all know what Benzema brings to the table. He was the man for Real Madrid last season. But 
one of our big concerns over Real Madrid is what happens if Benzema is injured, if he's suspended. Um, but to dig out a second half performance like this from Real Madrid, and some of these goals, by the way, woof, absolutely <laughs> exceptional. Valverde is unreal. He plays everywhere. He does everything. He is different gear. You know what? Valverde's goal is... Um... It's huge because for people who, you know, just hear that, you know, Real Madrid beat Mallorca 4-1, it doesn't really tell the full story of kind of what happened in the game because they were 1-0 down for the majority of the first half. And then, yeah, Valverde pulls an absolute screamer out of nowhere um, in first half um, extra time, you know, kind of like runs down the right, cuts inside, keeps he going. He from the edge of his own box. He's like, <laughs> right, right, go on then. It's, it's ridiculous. And like just levers it into the top corner. It's, it's a ridiculous goal. But in terms of momentum... And obviously, we know like momentum's massive in football matches. That completely swings it in in Real's favour, and then they still don't even go two one up until the seventy second minute, and then they just score twice in the in the final few minutes. So it wasn't the most routine victories, but as you said, it's those moments where you know Benzema's missing or other key players are missing. You're kind of looking to others to kind of step up, and and they certainly showed that, which makes you think, okay, maybe this Real team can get through difficult patches if Benzema's out for a long period of time. And that's kind of what you want to see. You want to see the evolution of a team. You don't want them to just... Again, we kind of mentioned it with, with Napoli in that regard. Just rely on the same people to bail you out over and over again. The kind of real sign of a team is when you know one of their core players is missing that they can kind of still get the business done. And that's what they did, even though it was slightly tricky. But then that speaks to the character of the team. Yeah, yeah, and to, and to win in in this style as well. Obviously, you know the goals do come late, but the they Messi's are very goals lovely. They are very the Rodrigo slick. goals lovely, and then and and then Rudiger like hammers in a back post volley in the ninety third minute, and he's going mad. He's having a great time. <laughs> um, but this is it, you know, and you kind of touching it there. But Benzema being injured, not playing, you're going okay. How does this pan out? Eden Hazard is playing as a false nine. This is going to be different, very different to to what we know. Then you go one nil down. You kind of get not not outplayed, that would be unfair, but definitely under the cosh a fair bit in that first half. And you're going, okay, maybe Real can't cope without Benzema. Maybe he is the glue that holds this hard thing together. Maybe this side are hardwired around how Karen Benzema works. Um, and then they kind of pull that out of the bag. And yes, it takes a moment of magic from Valverde to get them on their way. Um, but then to go and pull that second half performance out of the bag, I thought I, I thought was very impressive. I was very impressed with Real Madrid this weekend. Uh, meanwhile, over their eternal rivals, Barcelona continued to pick up steam. They won four 0 at Cadiz. Uh, it's goalless at half time again. Not not quite as routine as perhaps the scoreline makes it look. But this was a second half masterclass, especially from Rafinha, who I thought was sublime. Um, the attacking options, Jay, that Xavi has at his disposal are absolutely ridiculous. Lewandowski. Dembele and Ansu Fati all come off the bench for Barcelona and all three of them score. And a word for, for Frankie de Jong, who scored uh, scored the first goal, right? Yeah, I bet, really good. I bet if he'd said that to someone uh, maybe even a month ago, let alone two months ago, they wouldn't have predicted that. But yeah, really as good, you, actually. yeah, but as you said, um, after you know pulling all of those crazy economic levers in the summer, um, it was for a reason, right? It was to make Xavi's team better. And as you kind of said, if you're bringing Lewandowski, Dembele and Ansu Fati off the bench, kind of like the riches at, at your disposal. And I think what's probably impressed me the most about Barcelona is just how quickly Lewandowski settled in. Um, yeah. You never know how it's going to kind of work um, when one player who's obviously so important to Bayern Munich makes the leap and goes over to Barcelona. But it's just making it look so simple. And that kind of terrifies me for, for kind of everybody else in the league that he's just, obviously he's a fantastic goal scorer. 
but he's just made the transition look so easy and he's just combining so effectively with uh, kind of like the wingers around him. So Barcelona looking in, in really, really good shape in that regard. Yeah, I mean, nine goals and two assists in Lewandowski's first six Barcelona games. Just like ludicrous numbers, uh, you know, at this point. And and as you say, someone who's settling in, and especially because he didn't score in that first game and no one scored, it was it was a nil-nil draw. But, <laughs> and people were going, oh, maybe he's not cut out for this. So in fact, this is nine goals and two assists in five games since then, which is yeah, pretty stunning as a return. As returns go, we were talking about Haaland and, and, and what he brings to the table last week. As returns mm. go, that is very, very smart from Robert Lewandowski who's who's just is still an absolutely wonderful footballer and it's going to be really interesting to see how how that kind of changes the dynamics of the league this year for, for Barcelona and, and whether that is the thing that, that kind of shifts Real Madrid off the top of this pile um meanwhile Atleti let themselves off the shackles uh, which is nice to see it's always it's always fun when Atleti suddenly go oh we're gonna score some goals now and obviously we saw the drama that, that went down at the Metropolitano in midweek against Porto where all three goals in that game came after the 90th minute um they hammered Celta 4-1 at home this weekend they were excellent and Rodrigo de Pau I thought was very very good in in particular very very smart in that midfield he's a lovely player Rodrigo de Paul um but you know in this performance just one of those where Simeone hasn't seemed to completely trust him I think since since he made that jump from, from Udinese last summer he's not been someone who he's turned to in, in in massive moments um and I think that will continue to change across the course of this season I think he's a very very special footballer uh, and Betis ended Villarreal's unbeaten start of the season in a raucous Benito Villamarín in the late game uh, Betis leapfrog their opponents into third place in the table and that battle for the Champions League spots is going to be so fun again this season like you know we, we talk about the title race in Serie A and we think it's going to be really interesting between Barcelona and Real Madrid but this kind of scrap underneath them for third and fourth you know it, it's going to be really entertaining as well I think Jay you know Atleti as we say Villarreal Betis Athletic Club who were irresistible this weekend they scored four against Elche all had excellent starts it's going to be lively yeah, I was going to say it's quite weird that we're kind of talking about a top four um, kind of fight in La Liga and there's absolutely no mention of Sevilla. I actually need to actually look up where they even are in the table now. Well, they won. They finally, they they finally, finally got won. a win under their belts. They won 3-2, but it wasn't easy. Um, and, and right now they still look a bit they still look a bit ropey. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be throwing them in there. I think, that, I think they might have already left themselves too much to do, I mean, considering uh, the other times that we're saying. I mean, they're six points behind Atleti already. And obviously, like... like it's more than achievable to kind of kind of bridge that gap, but it's more probably just from from a like a like a mentality aspect, like to kind of start a season that that poorly when you've been so good over the last couple of seasons. And as we kind of touched upon before, the kind of um, evolution—well, it's not even really an evolution that the, that the defense is going through, just kind of losing their two key centre backs. It's just crazy. A, de- that, a devolution, I think. Yeah, a devolution. I, I didn't want to be that cheeky, but I'm, I'm glad you I'm glad you said it. Um, but yeah, to be talking about top four in La Liga and not mentioning Sevilla is is crazy, crazy to me. Yeah, well, here we are. The the <laughs> mighty sometimes fall, right? The mighty sometimes fall. Uh, it'd be interesting to see how that can, if that turnaround, if that win is finally where they start to get their season underway. But I still have major concerns with Sevilla. And um, look, we've covered a lot of ground full stop today, but I, I want to finish with a couple of things and and start 
with a couple worth pointing out in France, where PSG and Marseille both won to maintain their pace at the top of the table. PSG eked past Brest, while Marseille came out on top of a really good game with Lille. A really interesting game, actually, that one. Um, Marseille looked really sharp under Igor Tudor. They were good until the red card against Tottenham in the Champions League in midweek. And this was another massive win against a top four rival. Uh, Monaco edged Leon in the other marquee matchup in Liga. Caio Amrique grabbed both assists. They won 2 1 in the Principality. Four assists in five games now for the Brazilian left back, who I think might be making a late claim on that Brazil Seleção World Cup squad. So keep an eye on that. Very, very good footballer, a, a joyful player to watch and, and someone who can just provide chance after chance. And when you have the attacking options that Brazil have within this squad, I think it's going to be very interesting. If he continues on this form, he might make himself, you know, just someone that they can't ignore. Um, but finally, Joe, there was no football in the UK, as we mentioned, but there was a change of manager at Chelsea. Graham Potter coming in for Thomas Tuchel. There's lots to chew over with this one, but I want to just take it back to your USMNT angle for a minute. What do you reckon this means for Christian Pulisic? Now, our first show on here, we talked about Christian Pulisic and, and how he fitted in under Thomas Tuchel. And it just feels to me that this has to be a good thing. Yeah, I was really, um, I, 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 yeah, I really wanted to talk about this topic because obviously, as as you mentioned on, on our first show back in the day, back in the day, a few weeks ago, <laughs> <laughs> um, we obviously kind of spoke about potentially he needed to to move or to leave Chelsea either on a temporary basis or, or permanently um, to kind of revive his career. He's obviously about to kind of like enter his peak years and it's it's so important that all that potential is not wasted. But I don't think when we said that we expected a change of coach would happen at his own club. So I'm sure we don't need to get into or we don't really have the time to kind of get into what's kind of happened with, with, with Tuchel. But one thing that's interested me that's kind of come out in the aftermath of it is these whispers of a lot of the attacking players at the club feeling quite unsettled um, and suggestions yeah. that had Tuchel left during the summer. Romelu Lukaku may have wanted to stay. We've also obviously seen Callum Hudson-Odoi go to Bayer Leverkusen. We've seen Timo Werner, who we spoke about earlier, go back to RB Leipzig. So just these suggestions that a lot of Chelsea's forwards weren't particularly pleased with the way Tuchel constructed the side. So flipping that onto Pulisic, maybe that, that kind of gives us a little bit of an insight into why maybe things didn't exactly work out for him under, under Tuchel. But having a coach come in with such a great track record of improving players, especially improving young players and using so many different systems, I think it's pretty easy to get excited about what we might see from Pulisic in these coming weeks and these coming months because I fully expect Graham Potter to improve all of the players at Chelsea on an individual level in the very least. You've seen it with people like Alexis McAllister, Leandro Trossard. He just seems to be able to get another level out of them. And Potter's always been very, very flexible with his systems. And we know that Pulisic's a player who can perform in so many different roles. And so I think there's definitely going to be a place for him going forward. So I'm, I'm really intrigued. I'm not too sure what you think about it. Yeah, I, I actually think kind of more on a, on a human level to, to kind of take it off that. I completely agree. I completely agree with you tactically that I think this is a really exciting thing for, for pretty much all of Chelsea's forwards. But also, I think, you know, the other thing that's kind of come out of the Chelsea camp is that, you know, for a lot of players who'd fallen out of favour, you know, Hakim Ziyech, Christian Pulisic, Romelu Lukaku, as you say, that there was no kind of element of Tuchel putting his arm around them and saying, right, this is what you need to do to get back in the side. And, and Pulisic strikes me as a player who who might well 
need that you know who might who might not want that someone should just be like look not i'm not saying it needs to be mothered by any stretch of the imagination before anyone <laughs> takes me down the wrong path i just think there's an element of you, you know you push you push it if a player drops out of your side they can't get in you know what you want is them to be like right this is how you make yourself indispensable to me you know you want your manager to go this is the reason i've dropped you you know, it's, you know, for whatever reason that is, um, and this is how you can prove to me that you, I can trust you again, or that I can, I, this is how you work your way back into my side. And Potter is a man, not only, you know, a great tactical discipline and, and a great tactical nows, but also someone with literal degrees in psychology and, and emotional management. And I think that for, for a lot of these players who have maybe felt marginalized under this two cool realm, you know, this is a fresh start for them to be like, okay, here's someone who's going to come in with that kind of empathetic angle and be willing to to understand and address the fact that some players are going to be like, hang on, I, I don't understand why I've not been given the opportunities, especially when Chelsea haven't been, uh, you know, good in an attacking sense for some time, right? It, it isn't, it's, this isn't new. It's not, there hasn't been an element of, of Chelsea being like, okay, we're going to blow teams away for a while. And that's fine. I'm not suggesting that all, you know, all football managers need to play a certain way. You know, Tuchel's successes a lot of the time were down to the fact that he coached an incredibly, you know, well-managed team, well-drilled side that knew how to control games and could kind of stifle the life out of opponents. It didn't need to then be scoring five, six goals a game. But equally, when your, your strikers or your attacking options are not, coming in with, with goal contributions and are not being, you know, so so kind of undroppable that, that the other players in the side can't get a look in. There must have been a lot of players sitting around going, I, I just don't understand what more I have to do to be able to be part of this squad. And I think Potter coming in and, and having that kind of emotional management as well as the tactical now to be a bit more flexible than Tuchel was has got to be a good thing for definitely for Christian Pulisic, but also for players like Hakim Ziyech um, and players who maybe felt like they were a little bit marginalised by the system under Thomas Tuchel so yeah I'm, I'm really excited for Pulisic I, was, I, think, uh, I think it'll be a lot of fun yeah I was just going to say like that's a great point to make um, it's so important for people to realise that just with any kind of workplace not not just in the world of football people need to be managed and coached in completely different ways some people yeah. respond to you know kind of having kind of like very strict rules and you know discipline better and others much prefer you know, kind of being consoled a little bit more and kind of having a little bit more, you'll know what the word is, more encouragement and saying, you know, oh, you did really Cajol well. Cajoled and consoled. Cajoled and consoled, there you go. A bit more encouragement saying, you know, you did this really well, you didn't do that particularly well. And, you know, I've just done quite a long read in the last week on Ben Ryan, who um, is Brentford's director of elite performance. And he yeah. was he was previously in rugby and he led Fiji to Olympic gold medal in uh, Rugby Sevens. It was their first ever Olympic gold medal. And I've actually kind of had the, the privilege of speaking to some of his assistant coaches and some of, the, some of the, the players he played with when he was in charge of England. And the recurring theme was that Ben Ryan was really good at making sure that everybody in a squad, not just the seven players on the pitch, um, felt like they were included because that's when things go wrong. And so to flip it back to, to Tuchel and Potter, it's so important that everyone who's on the substitutes bench or not included in a matchday squad still feels like they're contributing. And Tuchel, you know, we can't really read too much into how managers are with the media sometimes, but it certainly gives us clues. Tuchel could just be really bitter in his post-match press conferences and things like that. And so you feel if you're taking that into the dressing room, a player's really responding to that. And I certainly think Graham Potter has a bit more of a perky demeanour. So you can just imagine him 
being a much more um, kind of like happy and kind of joyful character and kind of bringing in those players on the sidelines so that they very clearly know, okay, I'm not in the starting 11 at the moment, but these are the three things I need to do um, yeah. to kind of break back into the side. And having that clarity is really clear. So I hope you all stayed with me on that journey that took a slight detour via rugby <laughs> in Fiji. Yeah, mate, we, we pop into the rugby sevens for a little while. No, no, everyone's <laughs> having a good time. I think you're right. It's about, you know, building pipelines and showing players that there are paths for them to take. And it's not just a, you know, a one and done in terms of the players I like and the players I trust. It's, exactly. about, it's about showing people that they can you know, have that pathway to the first team and it exists, uh, you know, as kind of a fair trial for everyone. Um, so I think you're completely right. Completely right. Um, but with that, it's probably time for us to call it a day here on the Athletic Soccer Show. We hope you've enjoyed our roundup of the big stories across Europe for this weekend. And all that's left for me to do is to say thank you all for listening. Thank you so much to Jay Harris. A pleasure as always. And again, thank you listeners for putting up with uh, the random directions and the <laughs> random anecdotes uh, we both pull out sometimes. We, we really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. We've, uh, we, we, we promise to continue doing so as well. It's, uh, <laughs> that's not going to change. Um, I've been Jack Collins. This has been your weekend review and we will see you next week. Thanks for tuning in.